Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 162 of the In Squash podcast. And uh, you're going to be glad that you tuned into this one, part one of two with Chris Walker. Uh, what an amazing chat I had with him. Uh, part one today, part two uh, in the not too distant future with any luck. But uh, we covered uh, some tremendous ground with a guy who uh, was top five in the world, British Open finalist, World Open semifinal, where he played Jahangir Khan in Jahangir's last match, uh, last World Open, I should say, as a professional. And uh, we talk about all of that. We talk about how he got uh, his start into squash and how he eventually turned pro, his pro career, and all the ups and downs and the the, the successes he had uh, during that period and uh, the growing pains he had to go through, uh, his relationship with Neil Harvey and uh, other players. And then uh, once his pro career, and I mean, uh, also not to mention, uh, of course, uh, the the World Open uh, semifinal, as I just mentioned, and British Open uh, final in 2001, a bit later in his career. We go, we take deep dives on those uh, two momentous occasions for him. Uh, but also, uh, we go into uh, a little bit of depth on his relationship uh, with some of the other players on the tour, as well as, uh, uh, well, inclusive of Neil Harvey, who ended up being uh, his coach for a number of years as well, where Chris uh, wound up at uh, Neil's stable, which also included Peter Nickel, Ong Beng Hee, and many others. Uh, but uh, really uh, an incredible chat today, and you're going to be glad that you tuned in for this one. Uh, now, before we get into uh, episode 162, I just want to say a few words about our great, uh, great sponsor, Active Scout. Uh, those guys over there, they're working away, and hopefully, We'll have something for us soon. I've been saying this for a few episodes now, but I think uh, this is just uh, around the corner. I think you can even download the app, but we're going to wait until uh, Active Scout appears on the podcast. So you've heard about me talking about Active Scout uh, prior to each of my podcasts, but hold off on downloading, like I said, until Rob Eberhardt and I get on the podcast and give you the full tour and the exclusive uh, review. Here and only here on the In Squash podcast. Now, if you're looking for more information, uh, feel free to visit uh, their website at www.activescout.com. That is Active Scout without the E. And now, episode 162 with the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Walker. And before, also, uh, I failed to mention that uh, Chris also had a... a a serious impact on this podcast and we also go go into uh to that chris uh, unbeknownst to him until today's episode so episode 162 of the in squash podcast how are you i love i love that background oh my god that's that's amazing <laughs> yeah you're right there is that is that you on court as well or actually no that's that's a court that uh, is a couple of years after my retirement okay um, <laughs> but it's better than the background you'd see otherwise. <laughs> right on, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I've got. Uh, I try. I, we have a little swimming pool in the backyard, but it's dark, so um, you probably can't see it there. I opened the, the curtains, but uh, this is my studio, the, the living room. So, got it. Where, where do you live? <laughs> I live uh, just outside of Dubai, uh, in uh, the Emirate of Ras Al Khaimah. It's about uh, thirty minutes north. 35 minutes north of Dubai on a good day. So, uh, yeah, but I'm Canadian from Halifax, uh, nearby where your, your best man is, uh, now located. 
That's right. I'm his best man and he's my best man. Yeah. 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 Halif- Halifax. God, so what, what, you, what took you to Dubai? Well, uh, I, work, uh, I work here for the Ministry of Education, so I have a background in education and I've uh, pretty much been doing that since 1996. That's when I left Canada and uh, about, I guess it's 13 years now, I've been working for one of their national universities. So in various, it's mostly uh, sort of teaching English in uh with respect to pr- different programs that they're offering. So I, we tailor uh, their programs to English. So if it's engineering or business, we, we provide the support that they need, the students need, because all their courses are in English. So uh, right. right now I, I run the, uh, what's called the academic success program. So we try to help students with uh, low GPAs uh, okay. Less than two, okay. Around two point two and below. So, so yeah, it's pretty challenging. And uh, yeah, playing, I used to play quite a bit of squash when I first arrived here. But uh, uh, the country club. Oh, Dubai Country Club. Yeah. Well, that when I first arrived, that was its very last year. Uh, it's it's gone now. But that was the last year it was here. And since then, it's Emirates Golf Club. Uh, different venues like that, and that that's where they held the. Um, the Super Series final the last time it was here at the, the Emirates Golf Club. But uh, right. uh, in, in preparation for this, I mean, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm, I'm all over the map when it comes to, you know, the, what, I, what I'd like to talk to you about. I mean, you've had <laughs> such a, a, an incredible career, not only as a player, but now uh, uh, stateside uh, with your coaching and, and squash solutions and, and uh, everything that, that you've done. So firstly, just want to say uh, – uh, thanks for for doing this, uh, and uh, you know. For, before we get into it, just want to ask how you and I know you have a, a baby now, and your your wife. Uh, um, so Naeli, is that how you? Naeli, yeah. yeah. So how how's everyone uh, on your end doing during this uh, difficult time uh, right now? Yeah, the pandemic's certainly been um, a life changer, really for chance to reflect on things and, and obviously have a completely different schedule. Um, you know, Maya, our daughter was born September the 13th. So almost a year old now. Um, yeah. and so she has, for that. thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she's, she's spent most of her life seeing people with masks all the time and, and kind of, and we take our mask off at home. So, um, it's been it's been strange from that perspective, but it's been great because we've had so much time together um, you know, we've really been working as a team um, because we we haven't had much work to do up until the last month, where it's, it's been getting a bit busier um, for my commitments to to the River Club in New York. But um, before then, uh, we we had a three month when it first started in March. We had a, a three month spell in Maryland um, where I was actually fortunate enough to be working with a couple of uh, boys that I I'd, I'd worked with over the last five years in getting them prepared to go to college. Um, mm. One's at Naval Academy and one's just gone to Miami University for uh, his first year. And, uh, and so we ended up going, going there. They have a squash court and uh, a place where we could stay. And so we kind of all isolated together. And yeah. uh, I'd get, you know, I'd go on court with them. Um, it's kind of five days a week. So we had some sort of uh, routine that was 
was sustainable, you know, a kind of a seven day a week program would have been a bit mind numbing as it wore on. So it was quite good to have that time uh, to work with them. But then also, you know, we had a bit of a routine and, and it was great with Maya and there's a lot of time outdoors and, um, and just, you know, working as a team to, to make it all happen. And then we came back to New York on uh, you know, right at the start of July um, and, and that was when the, the numbers in New York for COVID were a lot better. You know, they, they got it under control. So, um, you know, we felt safe to come back. And, and so we, you know, we've been, we've been back here since then. The first six to eight weeks were um, quiet and, you know, pretty isolated. And that's the only downside really for Maya is that it's been difficult to see other kids and yeah. have, you know, have a playtime. And before we, before we, uh, all this started, we had a couple of nice things set up. Uh, the library here and a bookstore nearby, they had, you know, sing-alongs and uh, story time and stuff like that. So we were yeah. meeting other parents and kids and, and all of that went to the, uh, went to the wall when COVID hit. So that's the only thing that she's missing. She unfortunately has to hang out with dad and mum, you know, 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's, uh, that's awesome though, too. I mean, you get to spend even more time with her. Uh, I mean, I mean, my kids now I've got two daughters, uh, 20 and 16 and, uh, you know, on Facebook, they have these, uh, precious moments they, that keep appearing from your past. Right. So I had yes, one yeah. just today. It was like, you know, my daughter was four. It was, Oh my God. It's just incredible. So uh, yeah. Uh, Facebook's good at that. It does that for everyone, right? These pictures come up from four, six, eight, eight years ago. I had a couple come up recently. It was, it was a, you know, it came up saying eight years ago, but it was a photo from about twenty years ago. And it just keeps coming <laughs> yeah, back. yeah, yeah. It was stuff like that. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's amazing how time flies, and um, yeah. But it sounds like uh, from what you just said from your. What, what you were saying there, squash in, in New York City is sort of uh, starting to get back uh, a little bit anyways. Is that how uh, how things are playing yes. right now? Yeah. Okay. Governor Cuomo has been very uh, kind of rigid on basing everything on science and that kind of percentage of tests that come back positive have got to be less than 1% to uh, move to the next phase of reopening. So it's, that's why it got under control quite you know, quickly compared to a lot of other places that have, have had a kind of ups and downs. And so, yeah, so squash was actually allowed to start um, on July the 13th, Monday the July 13th, which is when phase three okay. came in. So it, squash was, was classed as a kind of a moderate risk sport um, you know, with two people in 670 square feet. Um, but there were some guidelines with, you know, good, good AC, um, air conditioning in the, in the court and um, concepts that were kind of that have evolved over conversations with U.S. squash as well about, um, you know, having bubble groups. So you might nominate three or four people that you would play with them and only them. And if someone got COVID, then, you know, you'd all kind of quarantine and everyone else at the club would be protected so um there was different different clubs have got different sets of guidelines actually um yeah 
but you know it, it's all about the comfort of the members um for for coaching um myself and my assistants are going to be wearing masks um and, and a face shield for the foreseeable future right. and then it's up to the members if they uh you know if they want to wear a mask or not because they're the ones running around and we'll keep our we'll keep our social distance as much as we can on the court, which is um, you know easier if you're if you're feeding balls and and creating the the routines. Um, I guess as a coach, you'd have to be uh, be careful in terms of how how far you push your your student if they're wearing a mask. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all sorts of liability issues here in the yeah, states. Definitely, you don't want to so, do any beep uh, tests or anything. Uh, <laughs> no, and, and they all sign a waiver when they come in, actually. So right. um, and at, at my club, we've got a sanitizing station at the court side. I wear a latex glove on my non-squash playing hand. So when I pick up the ball, I've got the, you know, the, the surgeon's glove on. And, and I also <laughs> wipe, wipe down the court door and the door handle um, yeah. and, and the frame of the door around the door handle. Oh, that's awesome, though. That's really, I mean, I, I know at my club, it's sort of, there is no squash pro and uh, sort of, you know, the management, they're not really, pre- they don't really understand the game that well. So it's kind of a little bit, you know, a little bit haphazard the way things are going. So, I mean, this kind of stuff, I always say to the management, listen to this, listen to what Chris Walker, listen to, uh, you know, what uh, Richard Millman have to say about, about yeah. uh, how to approach this, because this is what we got to do. And uh, yeah. I mean, the, the latex glove and the, you know, the, the sanitization station, I mean, it sounds logical to us as squash players, you know, being around the game so much, but to uh, people who don't know, uh, they might not think of things, especially yeah. the latex glove thing, but that, that's a good idea. Yeah, so, you know, I think our members uh, that have come in have felt comfortable, um, you know, at the level that they're comfortable, knowing that we're we're completely protecting them from us and, you know, and from the surfaces that get touched frequently. Um, the guidelines for the CDC are laid out, um, you know, with airflow and, and a good AC system um, kind of being paramount if it's indoors. And then, um, you know, and obviously if you're in the same family, you can have two, three or four people on the court, but um, limiting the number of people on the court uh, really has, has made it work. And, you know, the, there's, mm. the clubs have, have been open since July the 13th and more are coming online now in the city and, and, uh, and everything, you know, touch wood is going well. And, and that's one thing we want to keep these things in place because uh, we don't want to have a COVID patient come out of the club because that's you know likely to shut the club down and then everyone's um suffering i think i think the rules are uh, if there's two if there's two outbreaks in you know one place you know in your club then, then then you have to shut down or something like that but right um you know things are going well touch wood that's brilliant okay and i guess you probably uh communicate pretty well with the other pros around town in terms of you know best practice yeah i think well in in nationally actually across the u.s u.s squash has been very good with you know using zoom and having conversations throughout the summer you know i've been on zoom calls for coaches and for parents and there's you know there's a hundred or so over hundreds of parents and and you know a hundred coaches on the calls um just absorbing all the information, sharing information, sharing different ideas. And, um, you know, like it it was back in 
I want to say it was back in May when um, clubs in Cincinnati and Ohio were opening and, you know, there was no chance that was happening in New York. So, and, and Chicago as well opened earlier. So we had, we had a, we've had a chance to see how they've evolved and, and kind of pick their best practices and, is that where Crombie is? Crombie still in uh, Cincinnati and Ohio? Is he still? I don't know where he is. Yeah, I don't know where right. he is. He's always I moving think, around. I mean, he was, wasn't he? He was, yeah. and he had a, a, a serious issue with his uh, heart oh, right. yeah, years yeah. ago, yeah. and got through that. He was like, I don't know. He had something, and, and then he had to. He basically shut down for a week, which must have seemed like an eternity for him because he's a he's a nutter. But yeah, I think yeah. he's. <laughs> still you know triathlon training and stuff like that so he's probably yeah, yeah. fitter now than he was six months Better ago never. yeah use that as fuel to get fit again but chris uh i mean I, I, if you don't mind i'd like to uh take a look back and i know i mean you had a storied uh squash career uh an impressive one uh but according to to wikipedia uh i did my research on wikipedia it's quite reliable <laughs> uh, you gave you gave up an early start as a computer programmer sold your car and then uh, embarked on a professional squash career and obviously you you had game so uh maybe it was a foregone conclusion but was it at that time uh, what what led you to uh make that rash decision uh, at such a young age to uh, to sell your car and turn pro you think it's a rash decision. I mean, I only use the car to drive to work anyway. Um, but, but uh, I mean, you know, I was, I, I just finished two years at a sixth form college and, um, and took a job as a computer programmer at a company called Marconi Radar, which was about a 40 minute drive from my house when I'm in Colchester and I was living, living with my parents. And, um, you know, I was playing squash and I was training with, um, guys like Del Harris, um, Tony Hands and, and there was a whole bunch of juniors in that area and you know I love playing and, and obviously done the um, you know had, had some success as a junior and I love computing as well so I started this job and and I was trying to play and train as well while I was doing it so I was up at you know 5.36 in the morning going for a morning run or doing a training session in the morning then I'd drive to work and I'd clock in and I had something called flexi time at that point so I could mm. you know do a long day and get a half a day kind of at the end of the week or something so I could create some some times to play people um, outside of work uh, at, a, at a social hour um, and I'd come home and train and play and um, you know and at that time Del Harris was number one in the country and, and we would play and, and we'd have some real pig fights and uh, you know occasionally I'd sneak a win um, in practice and 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 at the same time i was I was getting frustrated by sitting in the car for forty forty minutes to an hour of rush hour traffic coming into Chumsford and yeah. you know foot on the clutch and slow driving and and um, and I, I just didn 't enjoy that commute and I also felt the cry of wanting to do more with squash and Del had already gone to south africa and 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 done the sunshine tour there and had told me about his uh, experience there with tournaments and, and it just sounded a lot of fun and and so I, I wanted to I wanted to give it a go really and um, you know my parents had supported me up until then and, and and I was it was funny actually because I was worried that they would be complete you know upset that I was gonna 
leave this secure job and and uh, <laughs> and throw away this opportunity. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I, I actually wrote a letter to my dad telling him what I was going to do and, uh, you know, that I was going to hand my resignation in. And I'd only been there for three, four months. Yeah. So I handed my resignation in, gave my dad the letter and... Uh, and, and six months um, after starting the computer job, I, I, um, I stopped. That was it. And so turning professional was suddenly I was, you know, I had to pay, I had to pay my mom 30 pounds a month rent. And, yeah, it was a good deal at the time. And, uh, <laughs> and so I had to Probably find better a way. than what you're paying right now. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, I, I saw your posts there on uh, Facebook. Right, yeah. Uh, My, uh, let's uh, not go into that one. No, no. <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, the current landlords in New York are not much fun to deal uh, with. When yeah, yeah, big yeah. egos and Just big imagine. lawyers. And big, big egos, lawyers. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and big lawyers. So... So, um, yeah, so I just, you know, they said they'd support me and, and you know, I, I had to try and find a way to pay my rent. And, uh, and so, you know, I sold my car. <laughs> that was, there you go. That was the, the first way to get some cash. And I also sold my golf clubs, which were a really good set from a pro that I uh, got hold of when I was um, at Colchester Golf Course. And so with that money, um, I actually bought, a ticket around the world for the first my first tour joining PSA ISPA at the time and and uh, so most of that money went to buy the ticket around the world and and set the schedule so I would have about two months in Australia I met it was about a month in Australia before the tournaments and then another month playing tournaments um, New Zealand Hong Kong Singapore Malaysia and then Pakistan on the way home so right. it's like seven seven or eight tournaments and that sounds a lot better than that commute right yeah that's a much shorter commute right <laughs> but, but I turned up you know I turned up at the club um, on my first day of being a professional and was like okay well what do I do so uh, so I, I, I Del, Del um, you know Del was already professional so I just you know locked into what he was doing and set some regular training and started to build a team and um, you know, Dave Clark was my uh, was my coach first of all at Lexington Squash Club, where I, that was where I turned pro, and, and I just started doing court sprints and getting fitter and playing Dell Moore, and uh, you know we used to like drive each other crazy, and it was so competitive. I mean that guy, Dell. Uh, I mean, I started following the pro game. Uh, I guess it would have been right around that time. I would have been a junior my, myself. I uh, maybe just started juniors, but at that point. Still, squash wasn't as visible, obviously, as it is today. But we knew who Dell Harris was. We knew you. We knew Simon, uh, all those guys. But uh, I mean, just to be able to train with a guy like that. I mean, the guy was just a machine, wasn't he? He was, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. And a, was, and a talented and, one uh, <laughs> at that. Yeah, incredibly talented, a great athlete, and uh, and and quick around the court and fit. And um, you know, I, I'd been training with him since I moved to Colchester in, uh, when I was 14. So I'd, we'd already been training together for like five or six years before I turned pro. Uh, and then, you know, there was Tony Hands, Mark Allen, Robin Godden. Um, all, of the, all of us were at Lexington Squash Club and it became this hotbed very quickly, um, this hotbed for, for, for squash. And, and we all pushed each other along 
immensely. And, you know, out of, out of that group, you know, there's Mark Allen, Tony Hansdell and myself, Mark, I think got to maybe 40 in the world, something like that. And then Tony, Dell and myself are all top 10. And, and I don't think we would have done it without each other. And uh, Dave Clark, you know, dragging us around the court, numerous pressure sessions. And um, <laughs> yeah, so that's how it kind of started. Brilliant. Now, uh, I mean, you, you had such a storied career and, and it was a long one as well. Uh, but you played during uh, what I... I I would argue is one of the most exciting eras uh, of pro squash. It was uh, the ascendancy of Jancher, the, you know, the, the last, uh, you know, maybe the last days of Jahangir that you had Isles, Martin, uh, Nancaro, uh, yourself. Um, and then you had Peter Nickel and Jonathan Power just sort of uh, their, their rivalries just on its way that they were ramping up for that. And then there were about 20 other guys who were, just there you know they they were all competitive uh so i mean during that time it must have been just so exciting so interesting uh to play uh during that period so speak to that if you don't mind chris and also i mean you you've seen a lot of squash in your day uh how would you describe that era because it just seemed so deep as compared to you know the eras uh, uh that succeeded it <clears throat> yeah yeah it was a great it was a great time and i think you know that really um as a as a junior as a teenager i remember going to wembley conference center and watching the british open there and everyone sitting around the glass court on really big comfortable chairs and seeing you know seeing jahangir jansha um the, they were you know they were the two always getting to the finals but they were all you know from pakistan and 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 the legends of Pakistan and the squash dynasty there, that was kind of what really fueled my excitement for the international game mm. to see them coming over to to England. And, you know, there's like Hidi Jahan came and played an exhibition match at the club I was at when I was a kid. And, um, and so, you know, that international flavour definitely, um, definitely motivated me as a kid. So then, you know, turning professional, Jahangir had um, really hit his hit his form, and he was in the middle of you know winning those ten British Opens in a row, and um, and so I think I think you know at that point everyone was in awe of what he was doing, having been beaten unbeaten for five and a half years until '86 when Ross Norman um, took him out, but um, that 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 whole period was was about training hard mm. playing matches watching these top guys in the tournaments when i went to them and uh, and just absorbing what they were doing going just hanging out around the court watching them practice you know watching jahangir do his 30 minute practice on the day of the of the match before he played and 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 just seeing you know just trying to emulate that and any other kind of thing that I could that I felt was worthy of of, uh, of copying and, and try, a bit of trial and error as well um, learning about myself and learning what I can do and what I could deal with and uh, and generating a you know building my belief in myself um, and and just wanting to be the best player that I could be and finding the right way to keep myself motivated through time um, and I think you know the fact that I did start off as a computer programmer and I did have that period where I was, you know, I don't want to say I ended up hating my job, but, 
but it was taken away it was taken away from from what I realize now is was my passion and and so so I just wanted to make the uh, the most of it and and I think all of those things um and those top players at that time and, and seeing Jahangir build his dynasty and then seeing Jansha come along and try and, you know, take him down and see yeah. and see that evolve as well and be part of that and, and get on court with these guys and, and always just get stuck in and, and learn to never give it, you know, never give up and, and try and beat them. Even though so many people around me, so many of the pros around me would be talking about, well, I, you know, I've got the draw and I get to Jahangir in the third round and, and I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to another exhibition match the next day or, you know, they book the flight home <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. Like, I never yeah. wanted to subscribe to that mentality. I always book my flight at the end of the tournament. And, um, you know, I just I just needed to be tougher and harder and 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 all these things in the melting pot were were the things that kept driving me on. And uh, you know, having some great coaches along the way really made uh, really made that possible. Uh, you know, starting off in my junior years with uh, Frank Barrett, and I'll just give them a mention: Frank Barrett from uh, Chelmsford, and and then Jonah taking on you know the, the junior national squads. Uh, when I was nine years old, I still got the T-shirt yeah. from. Uh, I mean, that that must have had a huge impact on. I mean, just I mean, what you just said there about you know not booking your flight until the end of a uh, until the end of the tournament. I mean, that that's something that <clears throat> sure. Well, I'm sure all of your coaches had an impact on you, but that's something certainly uh, Jonah would have uh, subscribed to. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're booking your been... flight for before the tournament's finished. <laughs> totally. Yeah, he would have been cursing and swearing all the way. If uh, if he heard anyone, uh, you know, was booking their flight home, it's like, what, you know, what, what, are you, what are you doing? You're a professional player. You got the tournament doesn't finish till you know next Friday. What what's the flight doing on Wednesday? Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 so you know that 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 mentality, just being around those people and and that level of commitment and that um, attitude, or you know, being around that all the time, just rubbed off you know rubbed off on me and um you know jonah in particular as a junior and um, through the junior ranks um i just saw on squash stories actually there's a post about bomber harris um yeah. Yeah. today or a couple of days ago and uh yeah no, i was in the under 10s uh, national squad and and uh you know it's my first squad at wooden court and uh you know jonah was there but bomber was doing the fitness sessions oh, and i heard so much about bomber and i was nine years old and by the time you know it was my turn to do a bomber session i was scared scared shitless basically well, he, uh, <laughs> was it brian Beeson? I, I had him on the, on my podcast and he was talking about how jonah and he and some of some other guys would go on the weekends and train with uh, with bomber and right. just uh, you know, they'd be running like miles around this facility and they'd be they'd be sprinting with uh, with logs or something and you know right. you have, you have the guy in the back has to sprint to the front of the line that 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 old routine they they right. be doing that with these uh you know wooden long logs <laughs> yeah. on their backs and stuff uh, it just sounds like craziness military style yeah yeah, yeah. military yeah. style yeah yeah. So you know, even as a as a nine year old, to to be exposed to that kind of uh, that 
I don't know if it's pressure or just just that vision of of uh, of what it, you know you've got to confront these things and to be able to confront them at that age I think was an incredible way to to build self confidence and self belief that you know shit you know I actually I I don't remember hitting a decent squash ball in that session but I just ran around for fear of my life because he was yelling his head <laughs> off at me and. Yeah, and then it was over, you know, then it just, was over. Just keep and, moving like, and he'll think you're working hard, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just keep running around. He seems to yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, so that, that's, uh, that definitely helped, um, you know, as a, as a kid to be exposed to that. And, you know, we're talking about the coaches with, with Jonah's just in his passion, enthusiasm, love for the game. And, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've spoken to him and, uh, you know, I could listen to him for for oh. days, and uh, I can just remember these. Um, he used to do the broad the the broadcast. I'm not sure if it was for Sky Sports, but I used to watch it on uh, Star Sports, which is an Asian TV station uh, network. And he'd do yeah. all the squash commentary. It was like back during the Power Nickel Barada, uh, uh, Paul Johnson. Maybe you were on there as well, but he was so good. He was yeah. so good and it just made, you know, just his, the expressions he had and, you know, the insight that, you know, I think anyone even, you know, regardless if you were a pro or, you know, hadn't seen the game before, you'd love it. He had that yeah. passion. And one of, one of my favorite books is Murder in the Squash Court, which yeah. uh, obviously he wrote a, a while ago now. And I just remember I was, I was 15 years old and, and I just read it, you know, I couldn't put it down and I, and I finished it just before the first round of uh, the British Clothes Championships. And I was playing um, the number one seed whose name, Garrett, whose name, I can't think of his surname right now. Um, but anyway, it was the number one seed and I was not expected to win, but I literally finished the book in the car on the way to the tournament and somehow um, was locked into the Barrington method and focus. <laughs> and, and I actually... Yeah. Carved him up, did you? Um, yeah, three one. Yeah, I won and uh, won the match. And, Surgical. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, what, what, uh, what was it? The, I mean, if you can recall, what was it from the book that sort of gave you that uh, maybe that mindset that you took with you to that that match? It's, I guess it's a long time ago. You probably yeah, no, but uh, you know, I remember. I, there's so much of the book I remember, and I like, love to just look back at the pictures and the pages and read bits of it all the time you know it's like a bible um yeah. but you know things like you know he he jonah um talked about an event that he'd won and and he was you know in the celebrations with all the uh, organizers and things and he got given a bottle of champagne and um and you know he gets back to the to his hotel room and you know he's thinking about the next event and he's training and everything and and so he pours the champagne down the down the sink <laughs> and uh, yeah. and you know tucks himself up in bed and uh, and he's ready for the next day so there you go yeah so you know i think i think um just just in the yeah in the book it it, it gets you in the mode of you know it's not so much about winning and losing it's a it's it's about um you know it's just about the dedication and the process and mm. and you know i think i went into that match um with no expectations except for I just read a fantastic book and you know and kind of that was I was in the zone you know I was in the squash zone yeah and uh, all of that that the book had had 
told me and, and, and I just went on court and played and, you know, I barely remember worrying about the score. I was just, I was just like a little mini Jonah Barrington on there and running around and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and not yeah. giving up and, and, uh, and just doing it. And, uh, I think yeah. that was, you know, an early, an early lesson for me about, um, about, you know, just doing it. Yeah. Just playing. Yeah. Right on. Now, um, I wanted, I mean, you've had such a, you, know, you had a long career, great pro career. Uh, you reached number four in, in the world and you, you know, medals at the Commonwealth Games, World Team Championships. Uh, uh, I, I chose two uh, sort of uh, what I would say were highlights in my research uh, and what you've done over the years so uh you know uh, you know no offense if i miss any uh, one that you might feel I'll, I'll ask you about that later but uh in 1993 uh, you probably know where i'm going with this uh you reached the the semifinals of the world open and played jahangir khan in the semi uh, uh pakistan it, yeah it was his last world open yeah. Uh, and you played him in the semi and you lost 3-1 uh, but that <laughs> must have been surreal for you to, to say okay I'm here I'm playing Jahangir Khan, uh, Jahangir Khan semi-final you know he's in the sort of uh, twilight of his career um, and you know the winner here goes on to play uh, another great uh, Jahangir Khan so I mean if I were you, I probably would have been as ner nervous as old hell going, you know, leading up mm -hmm. to that match. Uh, probably pretty difficult for you to think clearly and, and prepare properly. But, uh, you know, you're different. Uh, you're number four in the world. You reach that level. So uh, uh, what do you remember about that match and leading up to it? Uh, yeah. In it was uh, well. Obviously, he was in Pakistan, uh, the, his home, and the, uh, the following week we had the World Team Championships there, and um, it was at the DHA complex on the glass court there, which was which was a beautiful court, very uh, very close um, spectator space. So you know, it was, it was uh, a great atmosphere, and um, you know, I, I'd played Jahangir before a few times, and you know had had my uh, ass whipped um but i was i was you know and i and i knew him as well as a as a person and, and i wouldn't say a friend but definitely an acquaintance and and uh you know uh, we we would uh have a laugh uh, at times together as well so i was you know i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't that nervous playing i was really excited i i just you know i was like i was thrilled to be in the world open semi final and um and I was playing well, and I really liked that court because it was dead. And okay. I knew, you know, and I knew Jahangir. Well, that's, yeah, Jahangir wasn't... loves to just sort of get that ball moving, right? You're like, just total pressure squash, isn't it? You know, I, I was just, I was really excited to be playing in that match um, in Pakistan. And, you know, I wasn't afraid of a challenge. And I certainly didn't have any negative thoughts about the match. Um, yeah. I was just aware of all of the things that would, um, you know, probably be against me, like the referee and the yeah. crowd. Use that, <laughs> and, use that and, as fuel, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so, so nothing was going to phase me. I was prepared for anything. Nothing was going <laughs> to phase me or knock me off of my game. And, and, um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I went into it thinking, well, you know, I love the court. It's a dead court. 
I'm, I'm quick. I'm quicker than Jahangir is, you know, moving around the court. If I can contain him, if I can pounce on those loose shots and, um, and you know, and, and use my speed to my advantage, then, you know, I, I know I can get him on counterattacks and things like that. Um, so, so I went into the match very excited. And, you know, it was a fantastic experience. As I said before, I played him a bunch of times anyway. And you um, held your own in that one. It was 3-1, I think. Yeah, and, it uh, was 3-1. It was and... Yeah. And uh, I, I think he went too. He actually went too love up, and and it was it was reasonably hard. I you know it was reasonably hard two games, and I felt like I was physically in good shape. And he he was definitely not as fit as he has been in the past. You know he he was still in good shape, but he wasn't as fit as he was in the past. So I I you know I kind of step stuck to my guns, and I and I managed to win the third game. And and you know extending the rallies a little bit, and then and then what happened in the fourth, the ball the you know the ball the, it was you got it was a game of two halves. Right? The ball the ball did lose a fair bit of its bounce, and okay. Jahangir did not lose any of his length or his accuracy, and and how how and did I that did. happen? How how did the ball lose a fair bit of its bounce? Just from being just for being hit for 45 minutes, you know, I, I mean, yeah. the ball balls do it now as well, right? After, after half an hour, 45 minutes, they lose a bit of the life yeah. in them. And, and that was, that was, you know, really decisive in that fourth game. And, and Jahangir came out and, and started shooting right from the start. We never got the ball really warmed up again. And, and I wasn't able to, sustain you know any any form of pressure and, and keep the rallies going enough to to get the ball bouncy and to and to kind of test him physically in that fourth and and that's you know he outplay outplay me and and carve me up and and then uh, it turned out that was the last time he won a game of squash on the PSA tour there you go yeah, yeah. he lost to Jancha the next day uh, in the final and then announced his retirement <laughs> yeah well, I guess, I mean, I mean, you go down in history as being the, the last guy he beat, but you did, he didn't beat you uh, soundly. You, you held your own. That's right. It wasn't three love. No. <laughs> <laughs> but in that very same tournament, you also uh, earlier in the event uh, beat uh, Australian uh, showman uh, Tristan Nancaro. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell. I mean, uh, Tristan. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite. Uh, uh, things to to watch sometimes if i'm you know look for something to watch on youtube is his match against uh i think it was against jancher where he just starts walking around the court he walks <laughs> the perimeter of the court like two or three times and then hands him the ball after he, uh jancher gets one of his cheeky uh right cheeky lets uh so what's what was it like for you to play uh tristan i mean obviously he was a very talented uh shot maker type player but uh, a guy with a you know a bit of an eccentric uh personality uh, did you ever uh, how, how did that match go and uh ever have any uh entertaining moments with him on court god <laughs> yes yeah, see what a character what a great guy as well um yeah. very funny you know good great sense of humor um and uh and and talented and you know i my philosophy playing playing him was that i just had to keep going you know and, and expect 
anything from it. I had, you know, you had no idea what he was going to be like on the day. I mean, he could be an absolute genius and, and you're done in 25 minutes or, you know, if I, I always, always felt if I could get into him a little bit, pick a few balls up, maybe force a couple of errors that, that I could get into him mentally and he'd make a few more mistakes and, and get frustrated. And, uh, and then, you know, and then I've, I'd seen him, on a downward spiral before. And so, you know, and, and, and it was always uh, my hope that he might find that, you know, at any stage in the match. So I guess I always had, I always had this, uh, these things in my mind that gave me hope and and just don't give up. Um, And, you know, I I don't remember much about that match um, to be honest, but, but, um, you know, I, our matches had a lot of similar traits whenever we played. You know, he would he would go for lots of shots. He'd try and be deceptive and creative, and you know, and and I would be trying to contain that. And then if I was in trouble, I'd I'd be using my speed to try and get out of the trouble and pick up two, three, four by you know tough balls in a row, and yeah. eventually he'd hit the tin, or he would get tired because I knew I was fitter than him. Um, but it was a difficult, you know, it demanded a lot of focus and concentration. It didn't work every time. Um, but, um, I also knew that Tristan never felt that happy in Pakistan either. So, you know, so as a professional, I think, you know, so much of the game is mental and, you know, and, 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 and I was always looking, as I just described in my thought process to play, you know, Jahangir always looking for the positive things that would keep me going in matches and, you know, things that would benefit me perhaps and, and uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses and things like that. But just, just staying positive and, and over time, I think that also creates a bit of a reputation for yourself. You know, I, I, I never, I felt like I never gave up and, and that could actually in the end over time, you start playing people for the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, and they know that you're never going to give up. Yeah. And you get to a point in the match, you're at the same point again, where you're both breathing, you know, out your backside, and and the next three or four points are crucial to whether your opponent's going to stay with you or not. And so, you know, I can double down on making it even harder, and and know that that I've I've got them. And and so, you know, over time, I think. Mm-hmm you know, that, that philosophy probably helped me in that match um, because Tristan knew that I would never give up. And, you know, he, yeah. he uh, possibly had a couple more doubts being in Pakistan. I, I don't know. You'll have to ask him, but you know, they didn't get along well with the, uh, the especially with Jansher. They, the, the two of them did not, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they had some entertaining uh, uh, confrontations. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Australia and Pakistan, when, you know, when I first when when I was a teenager and, and, and turning pro, they were, you know, number one and two countries in the world. And um, and so there was a lot of animosity uh, between between them whenever they, you know, whenever a top Australian played a top Pakistani, you knew that, you know, the Aussies were just going to be tough and just, you know, yeah, probably yeah. drill them or, you know, just something was going to happen is always worth watching. And, you know, and, and, and mostly, you know, the Jahangir and Jansha would just, because they were so good, they would just, you know, they'd just stick to their game. They'd show very little emotion and, 
and uh, you know, and and you'd watch it, the whole thing play out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, amazing times uh, must have been. Now, uh, the second highlight, yeah. uh, Chris, from your story career that I want to bring up and probably you, you know where I'm going to go again with this one 2001 British Open uh, the ripe old age squash age anyways of 34 uh, start uh, you got through qualies all the way to the final uh, two out love up against David Palmer <laughs> and uh, what an incredible uh, run that that was uh, for you now I'm not sure at the time. I mean, I know you were still playing reasonably good squash at that time, but uh, leading into that event, did you feel you had that type of run uh, in you at the beginning of the tournament? And then uh, as the <laughs> tournament went on, uh, uh, how, how did things, uh, how were you, th yeah. what were you thinking? At that I mean, time? that was, yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of a kind of a story in the prelude to that really to, to, Give you some context i mean six months before that i'd just come back from a trip around the world a six a six month break from playing tournaments and and you know i basically decided at that point that you know i was getting on a bit and i'd love you know squash to give me so much and it didn't owe me anything more and um you know and and i i just i, I was you know with a girlfriend at the time we decided to, to travel around the world and, and take a break. And you know, it was a chance for me to kind of decompress and reflect and spend time with her and all of that. And um, so I came back after that trip and, and, and I actually felt like I wanted to play again. I really, I started feeling motivated and, you know, I got back to England and, and uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the next day I was on the running machine and I was back on the court and I was like, yeah, 50 in the world and uh, and I thought yeah I wonder if I can yeah I wonder if I can get back into this again and a friend of mine Ross Norman um, who was in my national league team um, pre my trip um, you know I was talking to him and uh, and we ended up making a bet and he you know he bet with me that I he didn't think I'd get back in the top 10 so that that was a that was a motivating factor at that point. It wasn't a very big bet. It was like fifty quid, but um, it was more the point that uh, that someone had uh, you know raised the raised the challenge. So um, so I think the trip, the mental break from the game, and then coming back and feeling this desire to you know to give it a go again and and, and feel that motivation again, like I was you know like it like I was just turning pro again, almost, you know, I was back on the, back on the routine. I had a purpose. Um, but I was also in a transitional phase at that point. Um, I'd been contacted by a family in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they had two daughters that were like 11 and 12 years old. And, uh, they, they wanted me to, to coach the, the kids and, um, and help them, you know, get, get to a level where they might get picked for a college team over here. And, and mm -hmm. that's another story, but that was kind of the, the lead into me moving to the U S but in that six months between coming back and training and going to the British open, I was actually flying back and forth to New York um, probably did it like maybe 10 times for three or four days in between tournaments to coach these, these two girls 
Um, they had a court that I could use and, and train on. Um, and, and, and I was playing a cut, you know, I played a couple of tournaments as well. My ranking was low. So I was, you know, I wasn't um, in the big tournaments. So I didn't play that many tournaments. And as you said, I had to play the qualies in the British Open. But it got to the time of the British Open and I was, you know, I, I'd done a good bit of training then. I got, I got my fitness back and, you know, I was kind of feeling, you know, feeling good on court. The British Open was actually the beginning of June and everything was going well until May the 1st. And May the 1st was my brother's birthday. And we all went out to, uh, we all went out to a go-karting rink and, and uh, you know, it was birthday go-kart thing and we're right. charging around. And I ended up, I had a head-on collision with one, <laughs> of, uh, one of the other guys um, in, in, the, uh, in the party. And, and it was fine at the time. But then the next day I woke up and I had whiplash and I could barely like move my neck. I couldn't get out of bed and I, I was a mess. So, <laughs> so I was literally, I was, I was unable to hit a ball for about 10 days and, and do any fitness. I was just recovering. Wow. And, yeah. and so, you know, I don't know if that was fate or whatever, but that meant that those two weeks that I had planned to do some good training in was was a wipeout and then and then I was two weeks to the start of the tournament now you know I knew my body and obviously my age two weeks before the tournament I'm not going to start doing pressure sessions and really no. you know push myself physically because I'm I'm in the phase where I need to start building up reserves and 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 everything collecting everything for the tournament so you know I, I just went through a light build up got to the first round and um and then it and then and then everything from before really um everything from before just came together as far as simple things like the philosophy that neil harvey had ingrained in me from the time that i'd worked with him in the second half of my career about just being being present and being you know it's it's about here and now and just enjoying the moment and uh and so i was very conscious of just staying present through the whole of that tournament and uh you know i, I would play a match and and then i had some friends that were coming to support and and uh and we'd go out and have some food and you know and so i went through the whole whole tournament in this bubble of a few friends and an ice bath at the end of the day and a good routine and, yeah. and a relaxed mentality and um and I just, you know, I just started playing in the zone. I just, my matches were, were long. And if you look at the, the time on court, I, th I think I spent probably twice as much time on court as Dave Palmer did by the time we made it to the final. Right. Uh, and not but, only that, I mean, you're playing the Marine as well. I mean, the guy. <laughs> right. right. So, so, you know, <laughs> he, he was, yeah. And, and, but none of that really mattered. It was, it was, you know, it was like a. It must have been surreal, though. I mean, it was. It was. You know, in a way, it was surreal, and um, and it was. It was. Uh, it was just a joy to experience it, really. And uh, and. So when yeah, when you're on. when you're two love up there, uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, um, by now you're over it, but. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I but mean, when, I when you're two, when you yeah, I know I'm not but, over. Yeah. I mean, in my own little, my little little squash career, I'm not over some of the 
the heartbreakers <laughs> that I've had. I, I still complain about little things. But, um, I mean, when you're too love up there, what were, were you thinking, this is, uh, this is unbelievable? Or were, did it just catch, no, catch I mean, up to I you? Was, I was you still, exhausted? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was still holding my mental state for the, for what I'd been doing the days before, you know, I was, I was locked into it to the mode. I'd had good rest. I had the ice bath. I knew I was tired. I thought, you know, he was probably tired and you know, this is, it's all, this is this, I'm in the process. It's, it wasn't so much. This is the final. It was like, I'm, I'm doing this again, right? This is, I'm yeah. doing what I did yesterday and the day before. And, you know, I beat Johnny white in the, in the semis there, like 17, 15 in the fifth, and Amazing. Bing on Bing He in the quarters. I remember that. I remember that match 15, against Johnny White. 13 in the fifth, and and I knocked David uh, Evans out, who was the current holder in the second round, um, and Oma Borossi in the first. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, yes. I, I remember the week vividly, and and um, and so it was just another – it was just – more of the same really and that's and but but what happened after the second game is that I, I was physically tired and and Dave Dave found the you know he found the answer he he started to hold hold me a little and and uh whip in a couple of boasts and kind of get me on my heels and and and, and kind of slow the game down a little bit rather than um just keep playing the way he was obviously he's trying to win as well and so you know so that was that was the you know that was the third game and then the, the fourth game we started off and he just got a, a, a good start but I kind of kept with him for a bit and, and I think the only sniff I had really was midway through the fourth game when when perhaps it was well, we were playing up to 15 then as well it was it was maybe um you know, I pull back to six, six nine, or six ten, and I, I, you know, I started getting a bit of adrenaline going, and and uh, you know, and had a couple of good rallies in me. Um, but you know, he he had the answer at that point, and and I was, yeah, I, I just couldn't couldn't find couldn't find the answer. I you know, I was right. I was I was cooked in one way, and you know, I do. I do and have thought about what the hell could I have done differently many, many times. And what a Jahangir came up to me after the final actually and said, Chris, why didn't you go for more shots? (laughs) (laughs) Which was quite funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I felt like saying, well, why don't you come down and tell me that after the second game? But, um, no, I remember yeah. that. I remember that event well because I mean, obviously, because of the, you had built up quite a following, having you know con- gone through the qualies, and you know people knew who you were. And then by that, by the I think by the semifinals, the story yeah. had uh, written itself. It was like you know you're here, you've done such an incredible job to get where you were, and then you know it just uh, kept going after you beat Johnny White, and then to the final against. Uh, against David you almost pulled it off but uh, you had quite a few people uh, backing you I think uh, heading into that final yeah I, I did feel like I had some support there and um, yeah. yeah Neil Harvey was my coach at the at court side and uh, you know that was nice because it was a culmination of you know probably 10 years of work with him as well um, and we'd had some great results along the way anyway but you know that was 
Well, that, that was that, that's Chris. That, that's sort. Of, I mean, the, the, I mean, you've been great with your time, and uh, I mean, we could just about go anywhere here. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, you know your your you know your move stateside to coaching, and you've done. I mean, incredible stuff there. You've got your own business now with your your wife, uh, Squash Solutions, but you've been coached to the national team and uh, and several you know amazing accomplishments as a coach. But uh, I'd like to ask you about your your relationship with with Neil, if you don't mind. I mean, it, it came to my attention. He was my first uh, podcast guest uh, way back right. when I started. Uh, it was about two three two and a half years ago or so and he did mention at that time that he was heading to your you know i think it was at that time it would have been your wedding your he was the best man at your wedding uh and uh just to speak to uh, i guess he you you must have known him obviously as a player when he was back uh uh during his his very good squash career but uh, he was your coach and then uh, i guess your relationship with him uh, grew through that so speak to uh to what Neil meant to you, both, uh, I guess, a, as a squash player, but also, uh, you know, he means quite mm. a bit to you uh, personally. Yeah, I mean, Neil Neil was in my life um, right back from when I was, you know, like 10, 11, 12 years old because he played at the same club as I did at Chelmsford Squash Club in Essex. Um, and um, and when, when I moved from... I moved from Chelmsford to Colchester uh, and my parents actually split up when I was 14. I ended up going to, to Brentfield, uh, to Shenfield Squash Club and having lessons with Neil when I was 14 and 15 years old. So, you know, so he actually started coaching me for a couple of years while I was still a junior um, and uh, my mum used to drive me there. And so, you know, that, that was kind of when I first got to know him when he was coaching me then as a like, 14, 15 year old boy. Um, and then when I turned professional and on that first tour that I spoke about earlier, when I sold my car and bought the ticket around the world, um, Neil was already on that tour as well. And, and I spent a lot of time, you know, with the English players, but in particular with, with Neil, um, as, and, and, and learned just to, you know, just what it's like on tour. It was nice to have someone and, and, you know, kind of, another British player to be, un, you know, to be under their wing a little bit um, and just learn the ropes and, and kind of get through the trip. And, and, and I learned a lot from that and, you know, how to, how to spend time and get your mind away from the, from the squash and lose a load of money playing backgammon to him and stuff like that. So, you know, so I think he was using Him and me. Rob Owen? <laughs> and Rob Owen as well. And Anders Wolfsted. Yeah, there was a couple of backgammon sets. I bought one at one point and, and I lost, I lost a lot of money on one trip to Hong Kong, um, to Neil and Robert Owen backgammon set and never playing. Again. But, um, yeah. but you know, that, that, so, so that was where, you know, Neil was a player and I, you know, I watched him play and, and he spoke about the game as well. And he was obviously passionate about the game and he was very sharp and, you know, very sharp mentally and, and, uh, and had, you know, he was a great volleyer as well. He was a great volleyer. Um, so, you know, watching him play and, and just spending that time at the beginning of my career um, was, was, was great. But then, you know, then he was 
he was in London and he he moved to Connaught and he was he was he had a program at Connaught and that's where Pete Nichol was and Tim Garner and Pete Jenever and Linda Charman and you know it was a bunch of he had a great hotbed of players there um, and I was out in Colchester with with Dell and Tony Hands and 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 my group so um, and Dave Clark was coaching me there and and so you know that was kind of the first part of my career and then I. I did my, I turned pro and I was in Colchester um, with Dell Harris and Tony Hans and Robin and God and Mark Allen. And we had a great hotbed there. And Neil, Neil had moved to Connor and had started his, his kind of academy and center of excellence there, training Peter Nickel and Tim Garner, Linda Charman, Pete Jennifer, the, on Beng He was there. You know, he had a great thing going there, but I was in Colchester um, but then I decided to move to London in the mid nineties. And, um, and when I moved to London, I reached out to Neil to see if, you know, if I could train there as well, because he had, you know, some great players and Pete Nickel there as well. And so, so, uh, you know, he said, yeah, great, come on down. And so that's when I started to work with, with Neil and, you know, and did a lot of work with Peter as well. And actually, you know, we became great friends off the back of that and have, and did a lot of stuff um, ourselves outside of the tour. Um, so, so that, that part when I was in London, really, I put, I put my, my ability to stay, you know, to have the, the last five years of my squash career. And in particular that, you know, my 35th and 36th year down to that period of time of training with Neil there and, in a smart way, learning new footwork, becoming more efficient on the court and being able to, you know, survive tournament play matches after matches. And, and so um, that was kind of, that was the, the journey as a, as a player and, and the way that Neil and I kind of interwove and, you know, simple things again lessons that i learned from him about you know staying present and enjoying the moment you know like, what time is it and where are we was always a question we used to ask ask us you know didn't matter where we were in the world the time was now uh, sorry the time the time was now and where we were was here you know it's yeah. it's here and now and yeah, uh, here and now exactly yeah, and, yeah. and just it's such a simple concept but when when it's uh, you know when when you remind yourself of that frequently you, you really do learn about being present and i think that that is what i get that feeling in this uh, just speaking to you in this podcast i mean th this is incredible i mean i mean i could talk you could talk for hours here this is, I, mean, <laughs> I, I haven't gotten through half of the notes uh, that i prepared for this uh, but i mean we can this do here and here now we can do a part two or we can carry we on. We should, because, uh, I mean, I got questions about Victor Berg here that I didn't get to. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. He's a buddy, a good close friend of mine from back in the day. Uh, but, what a uh, player, too. What a, what a, oh, my God. Talent uh, that guy has, a, the, yeah. the two-handed backhands uh, over there. But, uh, but yeah. anyways, that, that's, uh, I mean, the here and now, that, that's, that's incredible. Uh, uh, we can all learn from that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, just lots of different scenarios in around the world where we, you know, where that that was, um, you know, that gave me my. It was a new ability that he kind of got me to focus on, and and I think it really helped with 
staying in the zone and just appreciation of everything and um you know he had such an imp i mean obviously had an impact on you but everybody i've spoken to that's you know uh had a relationship with neil has had the same thing to say i mean the great one of the great anecdotes that i've heard on this in my, you know my experience in this podcast was from uh lj anjima uh yeah. and he told me uh you know he'd just moved there to train with with neil and i guess one day he you know he was kind of homesick i think lj was for a little bit so he, he showed up at the club and he wasn't sure you know if what he was doing and he said to neil uh, maybe he was late or something he said i'm not you know i'm not sure if this is for me and then he then neil said uh you know what you need to do grow up <laughs> and then that made him sort of maybe lj thought about that for a bit and then from that point on it was uh, full steam ahead i I, had know impact, LJ, uh, I mean i know lj very well and yeah. you know and and i was over there at times when lj was training as well um and and lj is a is a deep thinker too he's a he's a yeah, yeah. he's also great at telling stories and uh yeah he ha they definitely clicked you know and neil has that ability to to uh to click with people because i mean he's got some incredible experience as well not just in squash but with the charity work the not-for-profit stuff that he's done working with disabled and dis you know children that are terminally ill and and you know and some of the stories that he's shared have you know they're incredibly humbling and mm. and and it just gives you you know he's just given me a an extra an extra width on my view of the world that that um you know is ever expanding and you know i think he's also taught me to that i'm always going to be learning you know and, yeah. and i still am well uh you know chris before you go i'd be remiss if i did not uh bring this up uh, I announced that you were coming on yesterday on uh, on Facebook on the squash stories I don't know if you saw that but uh, it uh, brought out of the brought a couple of people out of the out of the woodwork uh, including uh, Del Harris and uh, <laughs> obviously uh, Jamie Maddox and they 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 would like to know um, uh, about your your strong resemblance to the those Johnson. <laughs> Uh, I, I, yeah, Dell's Dell's come up with that a few times in the last. They, they posted a picture, and there is there is yes. a striking resemblance there. It's a, and and I, I actually have a picture of me wearing a beret, and I was wearing this maybe 15 years ago or something, and and I posted that picture of me wearing a beret, and at that point Dell came up with the uh, with the, the the photo that he posted on Squash Stories um, back then. Saying like you're, you know, you're his. You're so his that's double. that's you, is it? The one with the beret. The one no, that it, he posted. <laughs> no, that, I don't know that one. I don't think that one is. He posted that, a picture of a uh, the guy <laughs> with the beret it, on. It might have been, might be you, but whoever it is, it. I mean, it looks like Matt Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know if that's my beret or not. We have to check the background to see. Okay, uh, but, okay. but there is a photo of me with a beret that uh, that that does it does yeah it does look a little bit like uh matt johnson yeah i mean i don't know what else to say to that um did you get any mileage out of that people I mean, he's, uh, he's a he's a lucky man isn't he he is he is he's very very lucky man. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Chris, uh, what do you got uh, upcoming now with the, you know, with squash solutions? I guess things are starting to pick up for, for, uh, in terms of business. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, a couple of, ex- couple of interesting things. I mean, for me personally, I'm now the director of squash at the river club in New York city. So that's okay. my, you know, that's my full-time commitment, but squash solutions does continue. And, um, it, it's, uh, it provides a platform for, the club in San Diego, which I used to own, I used to own a club in San Diego until um, about 2010 or so that I um, sold it, but sold it to the members. And I've, you know, I've always kept in touch and I started a, an urban squash program over there. So, okay. um, and I did a lot of summer camps over there as well. So I've got a, a good um, network of people there, but I, you know, I'm, it was going to close down uh, last year, a year and a half ago. It was going to close down, and and I came up with a suggestion that that I could run the the squash coaching program, um, helping a couple of coaches uh, do that. Just you know, just kind of directing them from afar, and also my company has the insurance documents and stuff like that in place to to make it happen. So it's now a not for profit club. And Squash Solutions helps provide the you know the coaching platform for the club, and um, and that's good. Mm. Yeah, so so you know so it's it's purring along in the background, and there's a couple other things that um, may happen, but the pandemic has uh, obviously caused a little bit of an issue with with a lot of squash stuff. So we'll see what happens there. But um, you know, for for me, I want to. I've only been at the River Club since since September. And uh, the last six months have, have wiped out a lot of what we'd uh, put in place. And, you know, actually some of the members are not coming back to New York for a year because of the pandemic. So right. we, we, we're going to have to rebuild again. So that's really going to be my focus in the next six months, um, along with obviously bringing up our little Maya, who is one yeah. year old on September the 13th. And, uh, and, uh, and my wife, Niley, who puts up with all my crap and, uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, yeah. And so, you know, so we, we've got a, a good, a good, uh, a good thing going in New York. Um, we'll be here for a little while, uh, yet. And, uh, and, but I do miss home and I look forward to being a, jumping on a plane again to, to go, to go and see my family. Absolutely. Well, uh, I wish you and uh, uh, your wife, your family, all the best uh, going forward and really appreciate your time. But uh, full disclosure, uh, Chris, the name of this podcast comes from uh, an email that you, that, uh, we had an email exchange maybe, I don't know, 19, maybe 2001, or, and I forget what the content of it was, but you closed the email with in, in Squatch. Yes. And uh, I don't know if you still do that or not, but it always stuck with me. I thought, yeah, that, that, you know, that's pretty cool. And when I was thinking about a name for, for the podcast, I, I thought of that. And I thought, uh, you know, there's, yeah, that, that has a nice uh, ring to it. And I think it has a nice message uh, in it. And uh, you know, full disclosure comes from uh, an email you sent to me many. We, we had an exchange. It was uh, maybe 20 years ago or so. But uh, that's it. I'm going to sue you. <laughs> I do. I do still. Um, I do still sign off within squash a little bit. But back, you know, when I was playing, I I did that all the time. That's very cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's uh, yeah. That means well, that's lot, what right? I. That's what I was referring to uh, earlier. When, right. Right. Yeah. 
Well, Chris, uh, uh, thanks so much for this and definitely would love to, you know, get to uh, the other half of the, the notes that I prepared uh, for today. But uh, all the best to you and uh, your family going forward and the challenges ahead at the River, uh, River Club. Yes. Th thanks so much, Jerry. It is a pleasure. It's, it's great to, to uh, you know, go back and, and talk about these things. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks for reaching out to me. Well, I know I can't wait for part two. Incredible chat with Chris Walker there. I know you, uh, you won't disagree with me on that. And so uh, thanks to Chris for that and looking forward to uh, putting up uh, part two in the near future. And everyone, uh, thanks so much for listening. Please uh, share this pod with, uh, with your friends at your club. Share it around uh, your squash community. Give us a like on Twitter on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, we've got some other great episodes upcoming as well. Uh, the, of course, the, the Chris Walker part two. We've got, uh, with any luck, Jamie Haycox and also uh, a few others that are in the works. So please stay tuned for those. Everyone, good luck with your squash. I'll be playing again uh, the day after tomorrow. Had a good circuit training session today, feeling great. Looking forward to uh, playing a young fella at my club. Apparently, he plays Division One there in Manchester. He's visit visiting his parents who live over here. So uh, we had a good, good, good hit last week and looking forward to uh, playing him again this week i hope you guys get out and have a good uh, good session a good sparring session or some good league matches maybe a few of you are are playing league uh, not here not yet but uh, maybe in the not too distant future keep up the good fight everyone take good care and uh, again thanks for listening goodbye now